Alright, after several weeks of good filler material as we completed the Torah, we wanted to take some time to look into how to use the law, how not to use the law. And so we come now to the next step in our study of the Old Testament. And I am just so blessed by this material, by God's Word here in the Old Testament. And I'm so glad that you're here and we get the opportunity to spend this time talking about the big story, how God has revealed Himself in history. And that's what we have in these historical books because there's so much history contained in Genesis through Second Kings, the book of Kings. As we dive into that material today, you're going to see how Joshua is a continuation of the Torah, and it's really a transition between what we have in God's promises to the patriarchs and his fulfilling of those promises through Moses and Joshua, and then how Israel then fails to keep the covenant of God in the remainder of the Old Testament history, and yet God remains faithful to his covenant. And that leads us then to what comes next. So the big story of the Bible is one that we need to read, we need to be familiar with, we need to reread. It needs to be in our hearts and we need to believe that the God who has revealed himself in this way is the only true God and that his ways are perfect and his ways are just. When I was in college at UNL way back in the 90s, I took a class there as an English major on the Bible as literature. That was a very interesting class to be in a secular university and be reading the Bible and talking about the Bible in class with a bunch of non-Christian or semi-Christian students. And so as these unbelievers read through the Old Testament, they found out that they didn't really like the God that was in the Old Testament. And there was a number of occasions where they particularly didn't like the things that God was doing. And the book of Joshua is one of those parts of the Old Testament that unbelievers read it and they're just like, whoa, what's going on here? This is not at all what I expected God to be like. And we'll get to those issues this morning as we go through Joshua but I just wanted to emphasize the importance of reading and knowing the Old Testament so you actually know who God is, which a lot of truth about God is hidden from nominal Christians in our society. And then when they actually go and read the Bible, they sometimes end up giving up their faith because they never really had faith in the God of the Bible to begin with. They had faith in a modern version of God with so much of the Bible scrubbed from what was taught and preached and understood so that's why it's good for us to read it and to know God as he truly is and to believe in him and trust in him, even as we read through his judgments upon the Canaanites in the book of Joshua. So let's start off with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the handout. We've got a lot to cover this morning. I've got four pages on your handout, so we're going to move pretty quickly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful book that you have given to us. And even though it's many different books by many different authors, we see in it a unity. And we see in it that it has come from one Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit. And that your word, Lord God, is complete, it's perfect, it ties together so wonderfully. And it communicates exactly what we need to know about you. So we pray that you would sanctify this time that we spend in your word now. Sanctify our hearts. Make us prepared and ready to allow your word to minister to us so that we might grow in our faith in you and our knowledge of you so that we might be more faithful to you and obedient to all of your good instructions and commands in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, so Joshua, you look at the... The little paragraph that I put there is the introduction on the top of your handout. The book of Joshua continues the story of God's faithfulness to his covenant. All right, so stop there. Think about that. This is the story of God's faithfulness to his covenant. That's really a great way of describing the Old Testament. The story of God's faithfulness to his covenant. In the second generation, that's where we are in this story. It's the second generation of Israelites coming out of Egypt. And God does his part in giving the promised land to the Israelites, who, though largely faithful, remember the second generation learned the lesson from the first generation who perished in the wilderness, who weren't faithful to God, who didn't trust in God, who turned away from him. So the second generation, by and large, was a faithful generation. 
However, we see that they still fail to take all of the land that is given to them, and this is what's going to lead us into the judges and Samuel and kings, where we see the failure of the Israelites to take and keep the land that God had given to them. So the land is a huge part of this book, and it's a huge part of the story, continuing from Genesis, where God promised them the land, where now he's led them into the land, and then, of course, the rest of the Old Testament will be the story of how they lose the land, and yet God brings them back to it at the end of the Jewish scriptures. All right, so you see there that the Jewish Bible is called the Tanakh. I put that on your handout again, because we're moving from the Torah into the Nevi'im. All right, so the Torah, the, the first five books, or you could call the first five parts of the one big book, the Torah really should be thought of as a, as a whole unit by itself. Don't divide it too much in your mind. And the Torah, there is the T in this word Tanakh. And then the Nevi'im is the prophets. And that's the N here in the word Tanakh. And the Ketuvim, that's the writings. And you could spell Ketuvim with a K-H, because the, the Hebrew sound has a lot of k in it. And so the, there's why it's a K-H up here, the Tanakh, Ketuvim. So the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim is the Jewish scriptures. That's what it's still called today by the Jews. And it's a good way to think about the structure of the Old Testament, because that's the way that Jesus referred to the structure of the Hebrew writings. You see in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses, the Torah, the Prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, which is the first book of the Ketuvim. So he's referring to the whole Old Testament here according to its three divisions, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and sometimes they would call it the Writings, sometimes they would call it the Psalms, which is the first book of the Writings. But here is a reference to Tanakh, in the words of Jesus. And so the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, is still divided that way. Now it's different from our Bible. There's a different order in the English translations of the Bible that we use as Christians from what the Jews use and what Jesus references here. Because when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and we call that the Septuagint, the 70. The Septuagint means the 70. So 70 translators were involved in translating the Old Testament into Greek, which was the common language of the ancient world at the time of Christ, before and after for several centuries. They then also at that time reordered some of the books of the Old Testament. And our Old Testament follows the Septuagint, the Greek Bible order of the books. So there's basically two different ways of thinking about the order of the books in the Old Testament. There's the Jewish way and there's the Greek way. And because we are Greeks, so to speak, non-Jews, Gentiles, we follow the more Gentile way in our Bibles because that's our history, that's our tradition. The Christian church, largely influenced by the Septuagint, followed that order. The Septuagint was the Bible of the early church and they used the Greek because they were all Greek-speaking. So that helps you understand some of the history of the text and why we're looking now at Joshua as the next part of the Tanakh, the, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, the Ketovim. And when you think about the prophets, we normally think of you know, Isaiah being the beginning of the prophets of the Old Testament, and we think of Joshua being the beginning of the historical books. So we divide up our Bible into the Pentateuch, that's the Greek word for the Torah, and then we have the historical books from Joshua to Esther, the historical books, and then we've got the writings, and that's Job through Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon, I forget the order, sorry, I should know, I'm an Awana commander, we sing the song every week. And then you got the prophets after that, so we've got more like four divisions of our Old Testament, but... When we're thinking about the Jewish order, the prophets are divided into the former prophets, which I put on your handout, and the latter prophets. The former prophets is Joshua through Kings. We think of those as historical books, but the Jews refer to them as the prophets. And then the latter prophets, with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, the Twelve being the minor prophets, the Jews thought of it as one book, a compilation of twelve different prophets. We think of it as twelve different books. That is just a a little understanding of the Jewish Bible versus the English or the Greek, the Gentile Bible.
Bible, okay? So when we look at the former prophets from Joshua to Kings, what we're going to find out as I'm doing this section on the introduction to the former prophets, this is our introduction to Joshua, we're getting our introduction to the former prophets, is that from Joshua to 2 Kings, you've basically got one long story of what goes wrong. That's basically the story of Joshua to 2 Kings. Is God has brought them out of Egypt. He's entered into covenant with them. He's fulfilled his promises. He's given them the land. Now, after that, what goes wrong? That's basically the big story here. And what goes wrong is exactly what God said was going to go wrong in the book of Deuteronomy. So the book of Deuteronomy, the theology, the prophecy, the themes and the concepts of that book carry us all the way through to 2 Kings. And basically it's the the story of everything God said was going to happen in Deuteronomy happens from Joshua to 2 Kings. Okay, So that's the big picture, that's the big idea. And it's good for us to think in the big picture and to get the big idea. So that when you think about the Bible, you're not just thinking about it in parts, but you're thinking about it as a whole. That's the purpose of the Old Testament surveys, to help you see the relationship of the parts to the whole, so that you can think about the whole Bible. Torah, the story of God's faithfulness, choosing Israel, making them a nation, fulfilling all of his promises. After that, the former prophets, Israel is unfaithful to the covenant and loses the land. That's basically the big story here. All right, so one term I want to also introduce here is the term hexateuch. The hexateuch is like the Pentateuch, except it adds Joshua onto the first five books because there are big ideas in Joshua that complete the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is kind of left hanging, that Moses dies at the end, yeah, but the second generation has just started to enter into the land in Deuteronomy. They've had a couple of conquests, they've had some battles going all the way back to Numbers, but still the end of the story hasn't been reached yet. The end of the story is they go into the land and they have the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they don't have it yet. And so the end of the Pentateuch kind of leaves us hanging as a cliffhanger, and it's not really a completed story until you get to the end of Joshua. So some people think of Joshua as a part of the first section of the Bible because it completes that story of the Pentateuch. And Joshua is kind of the guy who does what Moses should have done, but because of his failures, he didn't actually end up achieving. And so you could kind of see Moses and Joshua together as the ones whom God uses to bring Israel out of Egypt and into the land. So that's the concept of the Hexateuch, where Joshua is the conclusion, the book of Joshua is the conclusion of the Torah. And then after that, you get into what goes wrong with Judges, which is a lot of wrong, and then the rise of God's king and Samuel, and then the the downfall of the kings in Kings. So, Hexateuch just is a concept that helps you understand how Joshua is this bridge between the Pentateuch and the rest of the former prophets, the historical books as we call them. Now, we've already mentioned, I want to reemphasize, that Deuteronomy is foundational to understanding all of these books. When you get to then the latter prophets, like Isaiah, Isaiah is going to be exactly that. He's going to say, You know, everything God said to Moses in Deuteronomy, that's all happened. Because Isaiah is living at the end of the period of the kings. He's living at the end of the former prophets. And now he's saying, okay, everything God said is going to happen has happened. Now what's God going to do next? What's the next part of the story? And that's what the book of Isaiah is all about, the next part of the story. So I want you to see how the whole Bible fits together with the key parts of Deuteronomy and Isaiah linking it all together and explaining it all. And that's why Deuteronomy and Isaiah are quoted the most in the New Testament is because they're the books that explain it all. And what the New Testament is doing is saying, well, here was what the point was of all the Old Testament and it was all told us in Deuteronomy and Isaiah. These are the books that explain it all. But Deuteronomy and Isaiah are not our books today. Let's get into the book of Joshua. Open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Great place to start. Joshua 1, verse 1. Now, as we come into the book of Joshua, it starts like a lot of these former prophets, these historical books, do, with the death of the previous leader of the people of Israel. 
You see that in Joshua 1.1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, well, Moses is dead and now it's time for you to lead the people into the land that I had promised to them. Now, this is going to be a recurring pattern that you're going to find as you read then through the rest of the former prophets is that one leader will lead and then he'll die and then there's another leader and then he'll die and then there's another leader. But all the way through it, these leaders who die are called the servants of the Lord. Okay, that's a key phrase there. What it reveals is, is that God is this great king and he is the one who is working with his people of Israel and he does it through the mediation of servants. But really we should not focus too much on the servant. We should focus on the king who has sent the servant and told the servant what to say and told the servant what to do. And so that's an important idea throughout this big story of the Old Testament that keeps getting highlighted at the beginning of each book and at the end of each book. The servants pass away and they're not the focus. The focus is on the Lord who was with those servants and by whose power and by whose wisdom did all the things that the servants did. And that idea of the servant of the Lord then also becomes very important in Isaiah. As I love the book of Isaiah. You're going to find me referencing it as God is setting this up to lead to Jesus Christ as the servant of the Lord above all other servants of the Lord when we get into the servant songs in Isaiah 42 to 53. So notice that phrase, the servant of the Lord. Very important. And the Lord said to Joshua. Okay, now this sentence, while it doesn't show up in the English language, in the Hebrew, it starts with the word and. And so once again, this is why you can think of Joshua as a continuation of the Pentateuch, that the author starts it off with and. And so he lets you know, I'm continuing a story, I'm not starting a new story here. And the fact that he references back to the death of Moses shows also, not just by the grammar, but also by the themes, the ideas, that he's linking with what's gone before. And he's expecting that you've read Deuteronomy, and now he's writing what comes next. So once again, many different authors, but one big story that the Holy Spirit has superintended and tied together. Now, the authorship of the book of Joshua is unknown. Nowhere in the book of Joshua does the author reveal himself. Nowhere in the rest of the Bible are we told who the author of the book of Joshua is. Normally people think, well, Joshua is the author of the book of Joshua because it's called the book of Joshua. Well, not necessarily. Joshua doesn't have to be the author of the book. Now, perhaps Joshua wrote down a lot of things that the later author of the book used to put together the final copy of what we have in Scripture. But there's indications in the text that Joshua is not the one who is the final author of this book even though he may have contributed to much of the records that are contained in it, because Joshua's death is recorded in the book, and it would be hard for Joshua to write about his own death. You, know, you say, well, he's a prophet, he can prophesy, but that's not the way it's written. It's written as, after the fact, a historical account. And also, throughout the book, as you see on your handout, there's this number of times that refer to, so it is to this day. And so he'll say, you know, this happened, or this was set up, or this altar was made, and so it is to this day. Or they called the name of this place that, and so it is to this day. And so it indicates in the text that some time has passed from when these events happened to when the book of Joshua is finally written in the form that we have it by that phrase, to this day. Now there's a very interesting to this day in chapter 15, verse 63. So turn over to 1563. You may not have picked up on this as you were reading through Joshua, as I hope and trust that many of you are reading through these books. And in 1563, it says, The Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So what that indicates to us is that whenever the author, whoever he was, wrote the book of Joshua, that Jerusalem was not yet conquered by David. And we know that David conquered Jerusalem about 1000 BC. And so sometime between 1400 BC and 1000 BC, the book of Joshua was written as we have it, and the author was recording to this day, 
And we don't know when. It could have been 200 years after these events. It could have been 300 years. It could have been 350 years. It could have been 100 years. But it does give some indication that there's been a significant amount of time. So I'd say at least 100 years, maybe two or 300 years after the events. And things are still, many things in the book are still that way to this day. And you can read about David conquering Jerusalem and the Jebusites when you get then into the historical book of 2 Samuel. All right, so the authorship is unknown, but it was probably written, most clearly written, after the events of Joshua and before the conquest of Jerusalem by David. So the dates covered by the book are very brief. It actually just covers a single generation the lifetime of that second generation of elders who served with Joshua, that's when the book ends. And so we think that's probably around 1370, 1375. We don't know for sure, but somewhere within a generation, starting in 1406. And remember that when the book starts, Joshua is not a young man. We normally think of Joshua as a young man because we think of Moses as the old guy and Joshua as the young guy. But remember, Moses is 120 years old when he dies. And Joshua was one of the guys who was an adult when he came out of Egypt. And they'd spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness and Joshua was one of the spies. And so Joshua was a relatively young man when he was a spy. But after 40 years, he's getting old. And so the book actually tells us that Joshua was 85 years old in Joshua 14.10. And so most of the material in here is, is covered in a period of seven years. A very concise account of the conquest of Israel, and most of that conquest takes place in seven years. It would be like 1406 to 1399. And so think of Joshua as, as an old guy, and he's the one who's taken over after Moses, but he's now an elder, and then he's leading the army, but he's not like a young soldier that you'd often think of or picture in the story Bibles. Now, let's then take a look at the themes of the book. And the first theme is the most important in the book, and that is the land. Joshua is the book about God's promise in Genesis, in the Abrahamic covenant, to give the people of Israel the promised land, the land of the Canaanites. And that's what Joshua is all about. It's very clear. There's no debate, no discussion on this subject Joshua is about the land, and it, in fact, the land is mentioned 106 times in the book. Now, as I said, the book's record of the conquest of the land is not exhaustive. The author of the book really just records four significant battles or campaigns that basically secure Israel's control of the entire area. There were other battles, there were other skirmishes, uh, many cities that were taken, many events that are not recorded. He just includes the four most important that secured all the other victories, okay? Four important battles that are in the book or campaigns. Now, I want to include a little bit about apologetics when it comes to the book of Joshua because, as is true of all of the Old Testament history, the unbelieving world tries to attack the historical authenticity of the Bible. And the way that they come after Joshua is they say, well, there's really not a lot of archaeological evidence that this large group of people came out of Egypt and then entered into the land and conquered all of these peoples. We just don't see that much destruction. We don't see much archaeological remains of this kind of invasion and takeover. And so they say, well, it didn't happen the way the Bible says it happened. This is just a myth. And really, it was more like maybe a slave. They were, they were kind of the, you know, the lower class, and they were dwelling in the land. They never came out of Egypt. And they, they rebelled against the upper class, the rulers, the aristocracy, and, and you know, slowly took over. And had this transition from one group of people to another group of people. So... The liberals don't see this as history, and they, they think that archaeology is on their side and disproving the Bible on this point. Now, if you read through the book of Joshua, and you actually believe what it says, then you wouldn't expect there to be a lot of archaeological remains of the conquest, because they only destroyed three cities. Now, maybe there's other cities that they were destroyed, but the point of the passage, the point of the book, is that God was going to give them the cities. And you don't destroy a city if you're going to be living in it, if you're taking it over. And so, yes, they did destroy the people, 
And God worked in such a way that the armies did not just wall up inside of their fortresses and they had to destroy every city like they destroyed Jericho and the walls came down and, and Ai. But instead, most of the battles took place as a coalition of armies, a coalition of kings of certain city-states. There was no central power. There was just city-states with their own kings and their own rulers. They worked together then and they came out and fought against Israel in open places, in the plains and where large armies could battle with one another. And so after God destroyed the enemy's armies, then the people of Israel were able to take the cities without destroying them. So that's why there's not a lot of archaeological evidence of destruction of this kind of conquest because that's not the kind of conquest it was. It wasn't there to destroy the cities. It was there to take the cities. So once again, the unbelievers, they can present very good arguments if you're not carefully thinking about it. But you have to cross-examine their presuppositions and say, well, your presupposition is wrong. You're presupposing that there should be a lot of destroyed cities, when in fact the text would lead you to the opposite conclusion, that there were not a lot of destroyed cities. And we can go back and find that, yes, Jericho was destroyed, just as the Bible says it was. Other cities were not destroyed, just as the Bible said. So once again, be careful when you're hearing critics of the Bible to examine their presuppositions, and that's where they usually get you. If they can sneak in a presupposition, then they can make you jump to their false conclusion. All right, so let's talk about the second important element here and go back to chapter 1, Joshua chapter 1 again. Verses 7 and 8. Joshua 1, 7 and 8. Here, God is commissioning Joshua for his job as the leader, the commander of the armies of Israel. And he tells him in verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So basically, verse 7 is repeated in verse 8, a strong emphasis here on obeying, following, putting into practice the word of the Lord through the law of Moses. It's God's law. God is the king. Moses is just the servant. Moses didn't come up with the law. God gave the law. And we shouldn't think of it just as a product of its time. We should think of the law as a divine revelation that reveals God's character, God's justice, God's mercy, all of that. The law is good. The law is perfect. And the people of Israel need to keep the law. So the law is an important theme in the book, and I've put down certain verses there that highlight it at the beginning and also especially at the end when Joshua charges the people to keep the law so that they might continue to dwell in the land and be blessed as God has blessed them. So God is the king. His word is law. Now theme number three on your handout is Israel's obedience. As I said, this is the second generation. They are largely obedient to God. And that's great to see. The book of Joshua is kind of encouraging along that line that here we've got a generation of Israelites who are largely obedient to the Lord. However, that theme of obedience that we see in chapters 1 through 6 and chapter 8, chapters 10 through 14 and chapters 20 and 21 is also broken up by certain acts of disobedience among the people of Israel. Chapter 7 is about disobedience, chapter 9, chapters 15 through 17, and chapters 22 to 24 warn the people of Israel about the danger of disobedience and once again, just like Moses, predicts that they are going to be disobedient and that they're not going to be faithful to God's covenant and God's law. So turn with me to chapter 24, verse 14. Joshua 24, 14. Here we come to the end of the book, and we have these charges, these exhortations, these sermons, so to speak, from Joshua to the people. And in 24, 14, he has an interesting command here where he says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. So it sounds like, even though this generation has largely been faithful to God and following after Joshua and listening to God's law, that there's still the presence of idols within the people of Israel, that there's still household idols. 
There's no like national idol, no evil temple that they've set up, but they've still got household gods. This is something you can read about in a number of places in the Old Testament that they haven't been completely willing to part with and do away with. And so Joshua has to urge them once again to get rid of these false gods that you're carrying around with you still from your time when you were in Egypt and also all the way back in Mesopotamia. So they haven't rid themselves of their idolatry and they need to continue to be exhorted along that line. All right, and then number four, the fourth theme that I have on your handout is Joshua as a second Moses. And I thought it was interesting, Joshua's name is mentioned 151 times in the book. So even more than the land, Joshua is mentioned. That's not surprising since he's the main character. And as we mentioned, I'll just reiterate here, that when you think about the deliverer of Israel... It's really two people that do it, and they, they're like a team. It's the Moses-Joshua team that is able to accomplish God's salvation for Israel. They are his servants who carry out his will, and that God is actually the one who has set them free. God is actually the one who has given them the law. God is actually the one who has led them in battle. God is actually the one who has given them the promised land and kept his promises to the patriarchs. But he does it through Moses, but then Joshua is like the sequel through whom God finishes the work. So Joshua is a second Moses. And so like Moses, he intercedes for the people, he leads them through the waters, he meets with God face to face. Kind of put Moses and Joshua together, and then you've got a real strong picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the commander of the armies of the Lord, the king of Israel who leads in battle. He put Joshua and Moses together, and that gives you a pretty full picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I think it was wise for God to divide up these responsibilities between two different men to show that only Jesus is worthy of all of these roles. Moses was not worthy to bring the people into the land and to be the commander in that He sinned, he failed, and so someone else had to do that, and someone else got that honor. But God's Son is worthy of all honor because he doesn't sin, he doesn't fail, and so Jesus is the better Joshua. In fact, the name Joshua is the name Jesus. You go back and read the Septuagint version of Joshua, and his name is Yesu, which is exactly the same name as Jesus in the New Testament. So God gives Jesus the name of Joshua, tying him back in to this book as the Messiah, the conqueror, the leader. And Joshua is kind of a type of Christ in that sense. All right, so the purpose of the book, after we've looked at the themes, God gave the land of Canaan to Israel through holy war in accordance with his promise to Abraham. That's great, right there. So think about the book of Joshua. What is it all about? It's about God giving the land of Canaan to Israel. He does it through holy war. And this is all in accordance with his promises to Abraham. And then Israel dwells in the part of the land according to her faithful obedience to God. So you've got God's part and you've got Israel's part. God is completely faithful on his part. Israel is partially faithful. And so they have been given the land, but they only enjoy the part of the land that is in accordance with their own faithful obedience to their God. Okay? That will come up later as we get into some of the problems and interpretive issues in the book of Joshua. Let's take a look then at the outline, the structure that I've given you on your handout. Chapters 1 through 12 are seen as a unit by most people who try to outline and divide up the book. And chapters 1 through 12 then also can be divided into two parts, where in the first five chapters you've got them entering into the land, crossing over the river and making that step towards conquest. And then chapters 5 through 12 are really that period of conquest, those seven years of wars where there's four major campaigns that basically secure their stranglehold, their power in this land of the Canaanites. So there's the entering the land and the conquering of the land and all of that can be thought of as taking the land. That's the first half of the book. Then the second half of the book Well, you know, we've got three parts here, but really it's two parts with an appendix. That's how you could think of the book of Joshua. It's it's two parts with an appendix. So the second half of the book is about the distribution of the land. And from chapter 13, verse 8, to chapter 21, verse 42, is about how the land was apportioned among the people of Israel. The apportioning of the land is not very fun to read. It's a bunch of places that we don't really know, that we've never been to, and a bunch of tribes and their inheritance... 
And so this is another one of those sections of the Bible that is not a page turner. If you read it this week, you're like, oh, how many more chapters of this do I have to read? And that's okay. There's parts of God's Word that are not meant to be entertaining. They're not meant to be page turners. And, you know, they're really not meant to be preached either. This is not a portion of the Bible where I'm going to spend six months preaching through the division of the land. Professor Essex, who I've largely been using his material for this Old Testament survey, he had a memorable quote about this. He said, chapters 13 to 21 would be like preaching out of a telephone book. Not the most exciting preaching. But we'll talk about why it's important if we have time. And then the last part is the appendices, chapters 22 to 24. And really, it's just the first 12 chapters, and really the first five chapters or so, and the last three chapters that ever get preached. And there's good reason for that. I'm not saying we should preach the, the middle part of it. Or if you do, you know, one or two sermons would cover it very easily. But the last few chapters, the appendices are very useful as Joshua commands the people what they need to do in order to remain in the land. They need to be faithful to the Lord in order to enjoy the inheritance that God has given to them. And you've got those three charges in chapter 22, verse 1, to chapter 24, verse 28. And then a very short section at the end about three burials. Joshua's burial, Joseph's burial, Joseph's bones that they brought out of Egypt, and Eleazar, the priest, his burial. And this idea of burial is very important in the Hebrew culture. We see that throughout the Torah, and it continues here in the book of Joshua, that you're supposed to have a place where you can be buried. And the people of Israel now finally has that place where they can live in their own land, they can die in their own land, they can be buried in their own land, and their ancestors can come and visit their burial place in their own land. So this is the fulfillment of those promises. Now we've got a place in the world that is ours by, by God's grace. Now also, underneath your outline, I put four key verbs that are found in the book of Joshua that kind of gives us this fourfold division of the book. You've got crossing the Jordan, and the verb cross is very important in those first five chapters. You've got taking the land in chapters 5 through 12, dividing the land in chapters 13 through 21, and serving the Lord in chapters 22 to 24. So if you wanted to just use a keyword outline, you could use those four keywords to talk about the book of Joshua as well. Now, very briefly, I'll mention here Charles Swindoll's outline on the book of Joshua, and sometimes it's helpful to see more than one outline. That's why I've been doing this. So you've got crossing here, the crossing the Jordan in chapters 1 through 5. Then you've got taking the land, conquering the enemy in chapters 6 through 12, and he's got it divided up into the central campaign and the southern and northern campaigns. And then you've got the division of the land, which is that key verb there for divide in chapters 13 through 21. And then in chapters 23 and 24, you've got serving the Lord, and you've got the word service there. So Swindoll brings out some of these key ideas in his four-part outline of the book. Now, if you really wanted to make it simple and you just don't want to you know, have the appendices as part of your outline, you can do a two-part. It's basically two parts with some appendices, and it's conquering and dividing. Conquering and dividing is a good, easy outline. The first 12 chapters, conquering. The last 12 chapters, dividing. If you just want something that's really easy to remember, conquer and divide, right? Instead of divide and conquer, conquer and divide. All right, so with the outline done, let's take a look at some of the interpretive issues that are in the text. Now, unbelievers have lots of other interpretive issues, and I'm not going to focus on unbelievers. I'm going to focus on you as believers. What kind of questions would you have, and what kind of things do believers discuss and debate on the book of Joshua? And the first one is, how are we supposed to understand the conquest of the land? Are we supposed to see it as completed, or are we supposed to see it as incomplete? Because... There's certain passages that would make us think that it's all completed, but there's other passages that seem to indicate that it's not completed. So let's take a look at a couple of those, okay? Chapter 11, verse 16. Turn back to Joshua 11 with me. Of course, this is a great interpretive issue to start with because the book is all about the land. And so we need to understand how is God's promises to Israel, his land promises as a part of the Abrahamic covenant, how is it fulfilled or left unfulfilled in the book of Joshua. Let's start in 11.16 and read down through verse 23. Follow along there. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen, 
all the lowland of the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad and the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made a war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come out against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities there was none of the Anakim left in the land and of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. So these verses seem to indicate that the land promises were completely fulfilled and that the whole land was conquered and given to Israel. You can also find that emphasis in other passages like chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. But let's take a look then at the contrary passages, which seem to indicate that the whole land was not taken. So, and that starts in chapter 13. And if you're reading the ESV translation, chapter 13 starts with the title, Land Still to be Conquered. And you're like, what? Land Still to be Conquered? I thought the whole land was conquered. That's what you said back in chapter 11. What's going on here? So, chapter 13, let's read that. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. There remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. And he goes on and describes the boundaries and the territories that yet remain to be captured. And it ends there in verse 7 where he says, Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. And so there's land yet that hasn't been conquered, and yet God's going to divide it up and say which parts belong to which tribe, and that's what we have then in the following verses and chapter. And then come to the end of the book, chapter 23, Joshua 23, verses 4 through 13. And you see here, once again, in Joshua's charge to Israel's leaders that the land is not yet completely possessed. He says, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain. So there's nations remaining, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land. You shall possess the land. Well, I thought they did possess the land. Now saying you shall possess the land that your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong, and, and it goes on with the exhortation there. And so... How are we supposed to put this together? Are we supposed to be like the unbelievers and who just jump to the fact, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions? No. We should give the author of the book, even if he's just a human author, even if you don't believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture, we should give the author of the book some credit and recognize that he's not contradicting himself within two chapters. He's not an idiot. He's a very intelligent person. And as believers in the Word of God, that it's the Holy Spirit that has inspired us, well, then that certainly causes us to have any pause about jumping to conclusions about a contradiction. And so this is an apparent contradiction, but not a real contradiction. Basically, what the book is saying is that the resistance to Israel has been crushed. The Canaanites have not been completely driven out, but what Israel needs in order to drive them out has already been accomplished. Their strength, their defense, God has broken it. And now all that remains is for Israel to finish up, to mop up, so to speak, and take possession of what God has, in effect, already given to them. It's kind of like if I died, and in my will, I divided up my property among my kids. When they go to the hearing of the will, they find out, okay, this is yours, and this is yours, and this is yours, and everything's divided up among my children. But they still have to go to the bank and sign the forms. They still have to take the money from the account. They still have to get the deed to the property. There's still things they have to do to take possession of it, even though I've given it to them. And that's the way it is with the land of promise. God's given it to them. He says, it's yours. Now you just go and take it. And the people of Israel kind of fail to do that. 
they're just kind of happy with what they have. They're lazy spiritually. They don't want to go fight any more battles. And so they don't do a very good job of driving the people out of the land because this is the beginning of Israel's unfaithfulness. And this is what God designed from the beginning, that he fulfilled all his promises and showed himself faithful in the book of Joshua. But what we're going to find then is that the people of Israel fail to follow through on that and that God allows these nations to remain to test the people of Israel, to see, will you be faithful to me? Will you obey me and follow my lead and do what I tell you to do? And sadly, they don't. And that then leads to a lot of problems in the rest of the history of Israel as they're dealing with the people who remain in the land that they should have gotten rid of, but they didn't because they weren't obeying and following the Lord as they should have. So that is the solution to the problem of did Israel possess the land or did they not possess the land? I wanted to explain that to you. Now when you go and you look into Joshua chapter 1, turn back to chapter 1 again. Chapter 1, you see that God tells the people of Israel in chapter 1 verse 3 through Joshua that every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you. And he talks about the boundaries of this. He says, From the wilderness of this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Now, when you think about this, the borders of Solomon's empire, which that's what I have here, and I know it's small, you can't see it, that's why I also put it on the PowerPoint. And so, what you see is that up here on the northern border of what was the empire of David and Solomon is the Euphrates River. We often think of the Euphrates River being over here, Mesopotamia being over here, but Mesopotamia actually is more like this. And the Euphrates continues up here and the Tigris is over here. So there is a northwest part of Mesopotamia that often is not in our minds because it's not the cradle of civilization. So when we think of, well, all the way to the Euphrates, we normally think over here. But actually God is just saying to here. And so this is the borders of the empire of David and Solomon. But that's not the same thing as what God tells Joshua here because although they had this empire, they didn't actually dwell in these lands. Edom was still Edom. Moab was still filled with Moabites, and Ammon was still filled with Ammonites. And so even though they had these kingdoms as vassals, they had not ejected them from the land and taken their place. So here's Judah, here's Israel, and then here's all the vassal kingdoms around them. So the land promise that we find in Genesis and repeated throughout Joshua, throughout the Torah up through Joshua, the, the Hexateuch, is that Israel will possess and own all of this, and that never happened in Israel's history. Even at the height of their empire, they had it under their rule, but they didn't dwell in it. Other people dwelt in it. And so I think this is more of the borders of what Israel's going to look like in the millennium. I'm a premillennialist, and I think the promises of God have to come true, and that God has promised Israel this land. And so I think this is what the borders of Israel will look like more when we get to the thousand-year kingdom of Jesus Christ. Just wanted to make that clear here in Joshua as well. Now, the second ethical issue that I have to cover very briefly is the ethics of the ban. The second interpretive issue is an ethical one. The ethics of the extermination of the Canaanites. That This is something where unbelievers read the book of Joshua and they're like, this is horrible, this is terrible, this is genocide. How could God uh, command the, the dis- death and destruction of whole families, whole nations, whole groups of people. This is something that is morally abhorrent to our time and our age. This is holy war, and this is not something that modern-day Americans are fans of. And so the Christian is asked, and the Christian is put on the spot, of how can you defend the ethics of Joshua's extermination of the people living in the land, and that God is commanding this? Most unbelievers will read this and they'll say, well, this is all just myth. There is no God and he didn't command the people of Israel to do this and the Israelites just wanted to kill their enemies and so they made up this story that God told them to kill their enemies and that's the secular, unbelieving way of thinking about the history of Israel. That's not how we think about the history of Israel. We're not secularists. We're not unbelievers. We believe that there is a God and that this book is his revelation and that he did command the people of Israel to exterminate all the people living in the land of Canaan. Now, if that is a problem for you, that's not the first problem that you have when you're reading the Bible. Go back to the book of Genesis, when God wiped out the whole world with a flood. 
He didn't just destroy a few nations, a few families. He destroyed all the families and all the nations. And if God has the right to do that, then God has the right to do what he does in Canaan, even if it goes against humanist principles. God is not a humanist. The preservation of human life, human flourishing, is not his greatest goal. The destruction of sin and the establishment of righteousness and the glory of God is God's greatest goal. So don't be conformed to this world in being a humanist, but be conformed to the scriptures in being a theist and having God's glory and God's name and his victory over sin as your highest value. And then the extermination of the Canaanites is not a problem for you. If the extermination of the Canaanites is a problem and you wobble and weeble there, then you're also going to weeble and wobble when it comes to the book of Revelation and God is destroying, once again, all the nations. Men, women, children, old, all together, having the destruction, the judgment, the wrath of God. So you can't blanch here and still call yourself a Christian because this is God's character throughout the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And so God has the right to decide when the end of a family, when the end of a nation has come. And he decided that for the Canaanites, I think largely as an example. Once again, the flood was an example, and the extermination of the Canaanites was an example. The destruction of Egypt was an example to all the world to show that we are under the wrath of God. And unless we repent, which is God's gracious time, he doesn't have to give us that time to repent, unless we repent, we too likewise will all perish. All of our nations, all of our families, women, children, young, old, we are under the wrath of God. And that's what the Bible is designed to save us from, the wrath of God, if we will be wise and listen to God. All right, so I didn't have time to get into Rahab's lie, so we'll get into that next week. We'll start off next week with a discussion of the other ethical challenge in the book, and that of Rahab's lie in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. And we could spend a whole hour just talking about that. That's a fascinating subject. There are questions on the back you can do at home. Also, we'll talk next week briefly about the long day and the deception of the Gibeonites in chapter 9. One question you could add to your list that I didn't put on there was, how does Israel's conquest of the land parallel God's victory over sin in our lives? Hopefully that's not too typological of a question for you. I think there's some parallels here between how God gives the people the land and yet they still have responsibility and how that is paralleled in our life, how God has given us victory over sin and yet there's still some sin remaining that we have to conquer. So be thinking about that as well. All right, well, we'll take a break here and you can spend some time in fellowship.